200 Women, The Listening Ground, brought to you by Westpac as part of the 200 anniversary celebrations. I'm Felicity Duffy, Head of Women's Markets for Westpac. Episode 7, Perspective. A new perspective is a hard thing to gain, but when found, its lessons are never forgotten. The 200 Women Project discovered new perspectives on trauma, religion and acceptance. Truly eye-opening. When I was first diagnosed, I remember feeling an enormous amount of shame. And when we just talk about how many people have had breast cancer, I start to look at the numbers and how many of sort of this growing circle of women and worry about the statistics. I have to believe that there are many more people in the world, actresses in the world, that have had it, they're not talking about it. And probably similarly to me, they felt shame and they felt it was something dirty and they felt it was something they didn't want to have known about them. And so I spent the first three years after all of the treatment and everything, recovering, growing my hair back. You know, I had to appear for the first time with my hair really short and people said, wow, that's interesting. And I was like, oh, I just felt like a change. But something didn't feel authentic about not telling telling people about it and yet I didn't want to shout it from the rooftops I had breast cancer it didn't feel like I needed to at that moment in time but then a job came along and a lot of sort of our work is you know is there a nudity writer in it is there going to be a love scene and my immediate thought was oh my god I have one nipple I better get a prosthetic nipple I wrote away to this company and took a picture of this one and got this thing made and had it sent and I thought I know I can put that on and cover it with makeup and it'll look right but as we started to go deep, it was, it was for this show called Ray Donovan. That's a big TV show here. And as we went deeper into discussions about the character, I finally, I was sitting on this, and it was like I was sitting on a secret. And I thought, I can either bring with me the map of who I am and tell my story now with that and be a woman who can still be attractive and be a lover and be sort of a, an interesting character, or I can hide it and nobody would be any the wiser. And it felt a little bit like taking a leap, but it felt like a leap that was the right thing to, to do. And my husband happens to be an entertainment attorney. He's my attorney. And he's, he's like, why would you want that out there? And I just said, I've just mulled this over and thought this is really, this is the right thing to do, to be honest. And in the end, once the show aired, it sort of blew up and became this thing. Lots of emails and lots of chats on breast cancer boards and lots of letters and things. And I, I realized that... I hadn't done anything. I didn't, I didn't really set out to do it to serve the greater community. I just wanted to be honest. But it ended up giving me some kind of a purpose in a weird way because so many women then said, I feel beautiful. I feel un, unjudged. I feel as if I, you can still be sensual and sexual and not be sort of labelled in a weird way and think of yourself as scarred. Because I never thought of myself as ugly after that and I really wanted to put a very confident sort of well put together woman in a sexual light with a scar and not have it mean that she was less of a woman. I've been speaking about race for all of my life and so I've and so far I've lived about a third of it and I've constantly had to justify why I'm here. I've constantly had to justify why I can't why can't, why can't I stop making people feel uncomfortable? And being an artist made me realise that when, when they see me in a different light, they actually like me. <laughs> That's why I love 
being an artist so much because I saw what the sapphires did to a non-Indigenous audience. It appealed to people across the board, grandmothers, uh, mothers, daughters, uh, they, were able, they were able to relate to it because of, not only because of the era, but they re, uh, lots of young girls loved the sapphires because of how timeless it was. They were still young women trying to achieve their dreams and find their way in this very uncertain world. And I thought, wow, if that's, if that's what art does, it might, not, it might not be, it might not save lives, it might not cure cancer, but I, the fact that I had non-Indigenous people holding my hand and saying, thank you so much for the sapphires, you have no idea what that story meant to me. Um, I, I just thought, wow, I really understand the power of stories taking people through um, someone else's shoes and understanding uh, what it means to live that life. You know, for me, I've always tried to be the better person, tried to be the better person through any adversity, through anything that comes at you through life. What can I learn from this? What can I grow in wisdom? You know, how can I grow wisdom? You know, how can I grow wisdom out of this? How can the insight that I've now learned help, him, help me be that better person? And, and life for me is that journey of always evolving and trying to be better. And um, that's been my view of the world from as long as I can remember and um, the one thing I didn't want was to fall into that same lower person that indeed was Luke's father Greg and I still try to be that better person and you know often I fail my own expectations I mean I'm now struggling with trauma and post-traumatic stress and it affects your daily life in ways that people will never don't understand you know you can be triggered by some little thing each day that invokes a huge response out of you an emotional response an angry response a screaming shouting response but people don't understand they don't know why it's difficult to control if not impossible to control so you know three years later um, I can say my emotional um, fragility is, is stronger I, I'm, I'm better each week I feel but the sadness is still deep and the grief hits you um, in waves and I think that you know what I've learned is we don't know how to talk about grief and we don't know how to help people who are grieving and it's another uncomfortable subject nobody wants to talk about who wants to talk about death and tragedy and something that unspeakable so people will avoid you or they will look at you with great pity and so you know initially when I lost Luke I thought how how can I I don't know anybody that's been murdered I don't know anyone that knows anyone that's been murdered and now I'm one of those people that murder has entered into my life and when you know people see you and they look at you with such pity and sadness you wear it like a cloak and then there are other friends that you don't see anymore um, 
whether it's because your grief is too confronting or whether it's their guilt because they have children and you've lost yours, um, whether it's just an uncomfortable dynamic and it's easier to separate. So when you lose somebody like this, you lose your life. You don't just lose your son, you lose your life. And I feel so fortunate that I've been able to find the strength to just push through each day, to just get up and push through and try to be the best person I can be every day. And I know where it comes from. I lost my mother when I was six years old. And that little girl who was six years old did what I'm doing now. So when I lost Luke, it's like my body was familiar with a pain. I always believed in God um, and I loved, I had a really positive experience at the church. My church experience growing up was the dream church experience. I couldn't have asked for better people around me and lovely leaders and um, it, was, it was wonderful. But it was when I was 17, I just started to wonder why do I believe what I do? Is it because I think it's true or is it just because that's what I've been raised to believe? Um, and so I decided to look into other religions and Islam was actually the one religion I had no interest in looking into because I thought it looked sexist and outdated and barbaric and, and all the standard things that I think many uh, Westerners and non-Muslims think about Islam. Um, but to my surprise, I kept stumbling across information about Islam. So I'd open a magazine and there'd be an article about it or I'd turn it on a TV show and there'd be a documentary. Um, and I found that to my surprise, uh, it was when I sort of tried to get away from all the, the noise surrounding it and get down to the heart of what the religion was, um, there was something in it that was very appealing to me that made a lot of sense. Um, it, it was actually the antithesis of what it was being presented to me as. Um, but it was still, it took me about two years before I decided to actually become Muslim because um, I was worried about how my family would react and how my friends would react. And also it's a big step. It's not the kind of thing I think you just do on a whim. Um, but it got to the stage where I realised when I was 19, I really believe this. And if I don't become Muslim, I'm just doing it to keep everybody around me happy. And that didn't feel like an authentic life. So I felt very compelled uh, to do it. So in the end, I did. Because I did make a you know pretty significant shift when I was uh, in, still in my teens, um, I think it's helped me to always be very aware that I can be wrong about things. And so, from you know for what I was raised to believe, um, you know for many years, you know I thought this thing, and then I changed and I believe something different. Not, be, not that I necessarily think Islam is 180 degrees different to what I believed. In fact, I really feel like it was just a continuation of what I was raised to believe. But this, uh, this awareness that um, people can change their minds, people can, and me in particular, I can be wrong about things. And so it helps me to, um, when I talk to other people or interact with other people, even people who can be incredibly rude, um, try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And in fact, give people the benefit of the doubt, really, when they probably don't even deserve it, that I think that, you know, that needs to be the goal, that we can uh, deal with people with compassion, even when we don't really want to. And encouraging my children, you know, right from a young age to, um, obviously, we raise them with the beliefs and the values that we have, like every parent does. But 
you know, my family's not Muslim, so they, we're, we're going to celebrate Christmas with my mum soon. Um, we have some Orthodox Jewish friends who are some of our dearest friends. So my children have celebrated many Shabbat dinners with them and they know about the rules about don't turn on the light. And it's about saying to, raising my children to believe that um, you are who you are and, and that's good and great, um, but never having this sense of spiritual arrogance and everybody else who is who they are. That everybody, it's not... Um, Muslim and non-Muslim or us and them, it's potentially good people. Everyone is a potentially good person. And if we engage with each other like that, and particularly with respect, you cannot engage with people um, kindly without a level of respect because without that respect what I'm essentially saying is I'm better than you and then there is no there's no dignity in that interaction. So seeing the core uh, dignity in every human being, even if they live a, a lifestyle that I never would. You know, they can barrack for Collingwood, but I will still respect that. Um, you know, that is how, that, I really believe that is the only functional way we can live in society. One of the, the most profound moments of, um, I suppose, of me letting go of this fantasy of, of being able to make a difference happened at a meeting where we used to get together in a or different organizations who were working in violence against women once a month we would get together as a, a network and we were all standing up and we were talking about some new aspect of the law or some rape law or something and this old African woman kind of got up with her stick and she said you white women she said, you stand here and you talk about how terrible rape is. It's so terrible. She said, I was raped. My daughter was raped. And my granddaughters have been raped. And their children will be raped. It's not such a terrible thing. We need medical care. We need housing. We need jobs. These are the things that are important to us. And I just remember in that moment thinking, wow, I've been working in this area for six years of my life and here was this amazing old woman who had lived so long that she had seen every single generation of her family brutalized, assaulted, violated. And she said, stop going on about this. It's just how it is. These are the things that are really important to us. And I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I cannot speak on behalf of anybody. I don't know anyone's reality. I have no voice. I have no right to be standing here saying, we need you know, better laws. We need to, you know, rapists need this and whatever. So I just, I just remember in that moment just feeling completely annihilated and lost, you know, that moment of just being burnt down to ash and not knowing how to pick myself up from that place. Like, what was it all about? What had I been fighting for? Like, had I got it wrong? What used to happen was when I was working and my husband was working, often we used to leave our house very early in the morning because we had to commute from one end of the city to the other end of the city. So we used to leave at six in the morning and we used to reach home at nine in the evening and we were not left good for anything. We were so tired by the time and we used to spend about four hours, five hours, six hours a day traveling, which was exhausting. So. And you know what used to happen was when we were sitting in a four-wheeler, we used to see this bike zip by and, you know, reach the next trans you know, terminal very fast. And we used to think, you know, that's not fair. <laughs> 
you know, when we started conceptualizing this idea, I told my husband, you know, we're thinking about a bike taxi where there's going to be a driver and there's one person sitting behind him. But if I'm a woman, I won't be comfortable sitting behind the driver, I don't know, because if he breaks, there's a chance I might bump into him. And culturally, that's not considered very comfortable for, for people like me. So I, you know, I, I said, you know, if I'm not comfortable doing that, how can I expect my customers to be comfortable sitting behind a man? That's when the idea of Pixie Pink came in. He said, let's have women pilots because A, women are going to feel safer. B, uh, we're going to generate employment for women. C, it's an open mode of transport. So uh, again, Haryana, this particular state that we're in right now, is infamous for a lot of uh, incidents which have happened in four-wheeler radio taxi cabs on molestation or something, something very untoward towards a woman, which has happened. So since this being an open mode of transport, um, women feel much safer. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope it inspires your thinking today and maybe even your actions tomorrow. Westpac is very proud to have supported 200 Women, the listening ground. For the past 200 years, Westpac has continued to stand side by side with the women of this country. We believe wonderful things can happen when we come together, listen and learn from each other. We created Ruby Connection, our online networking platform for this very reason, and we invite you to join us at rubyconnection.com.au.